And welcome everyone to another episode of the Kuehl Show. I'm your host today, the insider of the insiders, Tyler Kuehl. And okay, this is going to be a little bit of an interesting start. I, uh, well, I, I, I do plug all my uh, my sponsors, mybookie.ag, 12 ounce sports, obviously, we're doing the live stream on. You're obviously not watching the live stream. Of course, we got to thank our sponsor as well, secondstringleathercompany.com, collection eight out right now. However, the reason why I'm doing this odd and probably rambling, bambling little start here is because, well, we were supposed to have the show begin with a video chat with Shannon Walsh of Slapshot Sweethearts Podcast on Belly Up Sports Podcast Network. Well, um, about halfway through it, it went and had a big fart. The Wi-Fi did. Not her end. It was our fault. I made sure I told that to her after the interview because about halfway through, we were having a good chat talking about the Taylor Hall deal with the Boston Bruins, which I'll probably mention later on here. It uh, it did not go well. So with that, we kind of jump ahead in the episode, at least from the live stream sort of things. Nothing more really for me because pretty much that trade with Taylor Hall I touch on later. Oh, I just hit my microphone. Anyways, but so we're going to jump ahead. We're going to go right into the interview, the second interview second of three we did today with Nathan Strauss. Now, if you do want to watch the Shannon Walsh one, you can. You can watch as much as you can of it. It is on our YouTube channel on the Cule Show's replay. You can still do it there. You can still watch Shannon Walsh and I chat a little bit about it before the Wi-Fi took an absolute turduck and dumb. So, that said, let's move on ahead where I talk to UMass broadcaster, a man who covers hockey, soccer, all sorts of sports there up in Massachusetts for University of Massachusetts Minutemen, talking about the National Championship. The Frozen Four this past weekend, UMass knocking off St. Cloud State. We talk about all that and more on The Kula Show. And welcome back, everyone, to The Kula Show. I do apologize for the technical difficulties we just had with Shannon Walsh. We'll try to salvage what we had of the interview. We'll definitely put it up. It'll be live on the YouTube page, of course, on the Kula Show YouTube for the replay tomorrow. Obviously, we're still live here on 12 Ounce Sports, whether you're watching us on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. Thank you for sticking with us here. I know it's a little bit of trying as of right now, but right, we're, go- we're live right now, so we should be good. Let's hopefully we stick around for a little bit longer because we got a lot to get to today. We talked about the Taylor Hall deal there with Shannon Walsh. Now we're going to quickly switch gears, though, off the NHL page. We're going to talk a little bit about something that happened this past weekend. It was a Big event. Of course, we talked about the Frozen Four in spades over the past weeks. The tournament in general. We had Micheletti on. We've talked with Harrison Watt during the season. But the big game on Saturday. St. Cloud State looking for their first title. UMass looking for their first title. Who's going to win? And then all of a sudden, the Minutemen come flying out. 5 nothing win. And we need to get a reaction from someone that was not just, you know, a fan of UMass. How about someone that was actually in Pittsburgh at the PP&G Paints Arena? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. One of the broadcasters for UMass Athletics, ladies and gentlemen, Nathan Strauss. Nathan, how are we doing? I am doing fantastic. I'm doing a lot better after Saturday than I would have been had the result gone another way. I'll tell you that. I will. I agree with you because that was a because I, I, I was sitting there watching that game and I'm like, because I'll be honest, Nathan, this is going to probably sound bad because I have you on for the UMass. I did pick Minnesota Duluth to win it all. I was, I, I'm was i a big guy in the history, and I love to see someone try to get a three-peat again. And we haven't had that yet in my lifetime or yours. So I was hoping the, the Bulldogs were able to pull it off. But UMass came out strong against all of Minnesota. They were the ones that were victorious. 
Absolutely. I think Massachusetts staked its claim for maybe the title of the uh, the Commonwealth of Hockey, if you will. I think the, the state of hockey title can, can remain in Minnesota. But, you know, UMass, I think, had a little bit of a chip on its shoulder, um, you know, being the only non-Minnesotan team. I think they were the, um, the, the biggest underdogs on most sports books as well going into the Frozen Four. Um, so I think that mentality served them well. And even if there isn't an official rivalry between Massachusetts um, and any of the Minnesota schools, it was, uh, it certainly looked like it out there on the ice. I, it was, it was a good, it, you know, it's funny because you think for title games, they're usually close one or two goal games down to the wire. I, you know, despite St. Cloud putting up an effort, it just seemed like menace or UMass, pardon me, just, just took over and they never let up. And, and I, of course, I think for for us, I think the biggest thing going into that game was Philip Lindbergh getting the start. Now, if you ignore the fact of what happened, if you just if this was last Monday, you said, well, of course, Philip Lindbergh's going to start. He's the hottest goaltender in the co- in college hockey right now. No question about it. But the fact that you had Matt Murray having to go in after not playing, because I mean, you can probably correct me if I'm wrong here, Nathan. I don't think Matt Murray played at all in the hockey tournament, right? No, Matt Murray hadn't played, I think, since, oh, I want to say maybe January. It was pre the second COVID pause. So it was at least two months, I think, since the last time he had made a start. Yeah, and that was the biggest thing because I remember he got this because he was the the elder goaltender, got a lot of starts early on, but Philip Lundberg just came in and really staked his claim as being one of the best, not just in Hockey East, but in the entire country. Now, yes, Jack LaFontaine and Dryden McKay probably you know, I'd done it for a little bit longer throughout the season. That's probably why Lindbergh got overlooked for the Richter Award because he was probably the only the number one guy for the probably the second half of the season. But then Carvel comes out and says, all right, we're going to start Lindbergh, though, because he's cleared for COVID. Him and Jasevich both cleared from COVID. They're both going to play. Jasevich, I get it. Obviously, he's one of the top scorers in the country, but one of the best Minutemen player. But Lindbergh, though, because you don't know what the effects were with Lindbergh with, you know, after testing positive for COVID before the frozen four and Matt Murray had such a good game against Minnesota Duluth. You thought, I mean, did you think Nathan that they were going to go back to Murray or did you think there was no question if Lindbergh was healthy, they were going to go with him? There was not a doubt in my mind that if Lindbergh was cleared to to play, that he was going to be the one in net. I mean, you're talking about someone who should have been a Richter finalist, um, but didn't really get the numbers in the very beginning of the season. Um, and because Coach Carvel has so uh, has been so steady in terms of using a true goalkeeper or goaltender tandem, um, which not many coaches do, um, especially not at the level that UMass is at. Um, I, I think his numbers, he, he, he led the NCAA in goals against. He had one of the best uh, save percentages as well um, in the entire country. And there's no doubt in my mind that uh, Lindbergh has a, a higher ceiling I think, you know, credit to Matt Murray because he was basically lights out in that Thursday game, having not really faced many shots um, in a long time. He made 36 saves on 38 shots faced, including a a really critical save on a breakaway in overtime that helped secure UMass the win. But I ran a poll on Twitter um, to see what other people sort of in the UMass and Hockey East circle were thinking, and it came back split around 75-25. Um, that they thought that Lindbergh was going to get the start. But I was pretty positive just hearing how Coach Carvel has spoken about him this year and, and how he's played in the past. 
because he he's a Minnesota draft pick. If I'm not mistaken, right? Minnesota draft pick. I think Minnesota that's draft pick six. I think sixth round, maybe in in 2018. Uh, rounds don't matter with goaltenders. Shoot, you can be a seventh that rounder, is true. just as good that as a first true. rounder. All the Islanders fans are like, oh, what do you mean? Well, Rick DiPietro, guys. Hey, hey, how'd that work out for you? But I, it's it's impressive to know that this UMass team because they started out and of course hockey East this year as for a lot of college hockey, but especially up in the Northeast, they was questions if they were able to get able to get to the tournament, Nathan, because of all the COVID issues, Boston university got into the national tournament because they barely played enough games to qualify for it. It just seemed like COVID and UMass was hit hard with it as well, or at least hit with having to postpone games. I remember I was waiting for so long for a UMass Lowell game for so long between UMass and UMass Lowell, the battle for Massachusetts, even though there's, five other schools in Massachusetts, but you know what I mean, Nathan, but that's why it's like, how, how does that make this team, this Minutemen team so much more memorable because they had to go through all this adversity, not just having to wait out a year after a 2019 national title birth, having to miss out in the 2020 tournament, then go through all the COVID issues through this season. And then being the last one standings, holding that national championship trophy high. I mean, first of all, I think a lot of it comes down to last year's tournament being canceled. I think UMass was a lock for the NCAA tournament based on how the regular season ended up. I forget exactly where they were ranked um, before the hockey's tournament got canceled, but I believe it was top six. Um, And I think that last season's team had more blue chip talent than this season's team did um, in a weird way. You know, you're talking about a team that had John Leonard, who has carved out a third-line role in his first year playing in the NHL, someone who scored more goals between this year and last year than anyone aside from Cole Caulfield. Um, you know, I think he scored 28 goals last year in his in his junior year. Um, and also a guy like Mitchell Chafee, who is, oh, yeah. you know, now also playing in the Minnesota organization. So there's a lot of talent that uh, didn't get a chance to, to show out for UMass and for the Minutemen, um, you know, in last year's tournament. And I think it's definitely added a little bit of resiliency, especially because UMass as a program did a very good job of avoiding cases. The times that they were shut down were because of either university policy or contact tracing. I believe the program didn't have an official positive case uh, until Jerry Harding or, or perhaps um, tested positive um, and, and had to, that was what led to the Gusevich and, uh, and, uh, Philly Lindbergh and Henry Graham thing this past week. So I think there's, it's been a, a real battle. And you think about guys being stuck on campus for and basically an entire, almost an entire calendar year um, with, with nothing but the team to, to sort of get you by. They've had to endure the stoppages and I'm sure it's hard to get a rhythm um, if you're, if you're a skater or if you're a goalie, but they closed the season on a real high um, and they played with some real belief, especially you know, they basically weathered every single storm possible. Um, you know, they 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 had players missing for the biggest game of the season. They um, and and all in all, I think there's just a lot of pride around the program right now. If that if that gets to the the real root of your question. Oh, that's that's the biggest thing too, because the the team and how it was before Carvel came in. I, I don't think it can be understated. He comes in twenty. He comes in for 2015, 2016. The team had just won two games. His first season, they win two games, but they win nine games, and then they make it to the national championship with 
Hobie Baker award winning Kale McCarr, and then the season gets shut down. And then they win it the next year. Don't forget, people like to say, oh man, UMass is so good right now. What, you know, how long have they been good? No offense, Nathan, but two years because <laughs> they, they'd only made it once before Kale McCarr and the Minutemen made it all the way to that national championship game. 07 was the first and only appearance this program ever had. I don't want to say they were not, I don't want to say the word laughing stock, but they were a team that when, if BC came to town or BU came to town, I'm like, all right, this is an easy three points. Let's get these and get out of here. Now the Minutemen are a really, really good hockey team. They have a guy behind the bench that wants to make this program great in Carvel. Greg Carvel, who has been around now for five years. No, yes, five. This is his fifth season. Is this the makings of a powerhouse? Or are we, is that too early? Is it just a couple good years, a really good recruiting class, as we talked about, as a lot of people are talking about with Gisevich and Murray being the, the veteran group, and now we have the young kids coming in as well. Is this going to be a long, is this going to be a team that's going to be good for a long time? Or is this just, hey, look at these couple of years, great, but it's going to be tough to try to keep it going against the BCs and the BUs in the Hockey East Conference? There is no doubt in my mind that this is the beginning of a, a truly dominant era, I think, for Massachusetts hockey. And I think part of that is because, you know, you look at where UMass has finished in the last three years. They obviously won, you know, they finished first in, in Hockey East. Um, they they lost in the semis of the Hockey East tournament to BC back in the Kale McCarr year. But, you know, they made the national championship before getting steamrolled by Duluth. And then the next year when people were thinking, okay, well, you know, Makar is gone. There's going to be some regression, but, you know, they finished second. And, you know, we, we unfortunately don't know what they would have been able to do come postseason time. And then yes, this year, you know, people thought they were going to be retooling again. They got, you know, Gusevich as a grad transfer. They obviously had, you know, a number of talented guys on the roster, people like Del Gaizo. Um, I think defensively, there weren't that many questions that, that UMass was going to be able to compete. You know, Del Gaizo, Jones, and Kessel all being, you know, NHL draft selections. But just seeing how this team has functioned as a system and how they've been able to function when they lose key players. You know, they lost Gusevich, who was one of their primary points getters all year, and were able to plug in Anthony Del Gaizo in the top line um, in the biggest game of the year in a, in a national semifinal. And Del Gaizo was able to come away with the game-tying goal with, with 10 minutes to go in the third period. That's a, a demonstration to me of a strong system. And I think there is a real question as to whether or not the recruiting strategy is going to change or not, because by and large, it's been a combination of excellent grad, grad transfers. You think of guys like Brett Boeing, um, or not Brett Boeing, sorry, uh, Jacob Pritchard in, in 2018-19, um, and Carson Gusevich this year. We've got a couple of guys coming in next year, um, I believe one from Dartmouth and one from Cornell, who could very well step in and fill that role. But the question becomes, does UMass go the way of BC, BU, and Northeastern and try and get more guys from the development program, try and get more sort of blue bloods, or do they stick to their guns, get guys to the assistant coaches in, in DeMike and Barr want, and who think who they think can uh, you know contribute over four years? I think it's a tough balance to strike, but between the facilities that UMass has, the exposure they've gotten over the last couple of years, and most importantly, the guy behind the bench. I am very optimistic about the direction this program is headed. You know, it's a really good point you make there, Nathan, because you have the the BUs and BCs who are, or established powers have been since the beginning of time. It seems like, and they and that with with that comes 
the the pedigree and the awe inspiring. You know, everyone's like, oh, I got to go to BC, and that's what a lot of these kids coming up, you know, through the national programs and through junior hockey. I'm like, wow, like I get to go to play BU. That's great, but. Do you think now that narrative may change? You know, yes, obviously the the transfer portal is really filling up with a lot of great players from all across the country. The, a lot of, you know, the big names probably picking some big graduate transfers coming up this season, possibly. But it with UMass winning now, do you think that'll help them get the Blue Bloods, as your words, you know, you kind of just said there. Do you think that'll help them get the guys from the national program over in Michigan or down here in Michigan. Do you think that's going to get the big guys that everyone's like, Oh, this is the next can't miss high school talent or junior talent. He's going to make it big in the NCAAs that UMass can say, Hey, we're a really good program. We just got through UMass. We just got through the back-to-back defending national champs, Minnesota Duluth come play for us. And we'll still be good. Cause this is a program that's still going to have a lot of good returning players, Nathan. Yeah. Well, I think, I'm going to pose another question to you. Oh boy. Which is what is more important in establishing a successful college hockey program? Having committed four year players or elite talent? Because I think there's a, a really strong argument to be made that while having, you know, elite NHL talent um, or future NHL talent is a good way to find success at the NCAA level. I mean, you look at how Jerry York recruited. Um, you know, or has recruited over the course of his career. Um, I would argue that we are in an age right now where more players are jumping ship after one or two years to sign their ELCs um, that it actually might be, I think UMass might be better served finding guys who are willing to, you know, grind it out for a couple of years in the USHL will come to UMass as 19 year olds or 20 year olds. Maybe they will have been selected. Maybe they won't. And they'll be willing to, you know, really strongly consider playing all four years. You look at the the success that UMass had with four-year players last year, guys like Jack Suter, um, you know, who who aren't who weren't drafted, who didn't have that kind of exposure, and who are using their junior and senior years to to show out for a potential, you know, ECHL or AHL contract. Guys like Jake McLaughlin as well on that team. And guys like on this year's team, like, you know, a Phil Laganov, someone who has to skate really hard and value every single shift. I think that there is the risk sometimes when you see teams that are comprised of largely high-end talent. Maybe a a good example of that would be, I don't want to point fingers at BC this year because I think they are a tremendously talented team and I have a lot of respect for, for everything Coach York does, but BC this year or BU the year before with Trevor Zegras. Yep. Um, I think the way to build a winning team in college hockey is to get a mixture of elite talent and four-year guys, you know, guys like Cotton. That's why I think that BC um, last year would have steamrolled everyone in the NCAA tournament because they had the mix. They had Matala. They had the four-year players who are, you know, first of all, big. And, and you know, you're talking about guys who are 23, 24. Man, you know, Jake Caudet yeah. for UMass this year. Um, is almost 25. That's a big difference when you're going up against 18, 19 year olds. Like that, you really cannot understate that. So my question for you is, how do you strike that balance if you're if you're a coach of you know a team in one of the two toughest conferences in college hockey? Well, that's that's a real real good point because you almost look at it. You know, we're just having the trade deadline here, and one thing I was talking with Shannon Walsh was about with the Toronto Maple Leafs is yes, you have this young great talent. You have your Matthews, your Marners, yep. Nylanders, the whole kit and caboodle. But you need those guys that are 
the grizzled, the tough, the, the, as we talked about, the men, you know, that's why they've got Felino. That's why they got Bogosian over the offseason, Wayne Simmons. They may not be your point getters, but you need those guys to work out. That's why for UMass, you need those guys that have been there all four years and may not be your studs. They may give way to your Trevinos and your Gisevichs. And obviously on the back end, you got a really good talent there in Matthew Kessel. But you need those guys that are able to work hard and show the guys that come in that are the grad transfers or the kids that are coming through the transfer portal and say, hey, this is how we do things here at UMass. And that is what's going to help build this program to be consistently good. And by the way, you talked about where UMass was going into the tournament. They were ranked last ninth in the final rankings in March. So they were still in the top 10. They were the second best team in Hockey East. Boston College was fourth. But boy, that would have been. I, I still look at last year's tournament and wonder because North Dakota was really good. BC was really good. Cornell was beating the holy heck out of everybody in the ECAC. It would have been just. And of course, there was still Minnesota Duluth with Scott right. Karunovich on the back end. Man, that could have been your frozen four right there. No, absolutely. I mean, you look at that Cornell team. I think there was some concern because I don't think that they had been tested as much. And yes, that's one of the, you know, that's one of the pitfalls of being in the ECAC. But you look at, you know, they had Delida in goal. They had uh, Cotton scoring like I, almost 20 goals, I think. That team could have been a real force as well. And then, obviously, UND. That Jordan Kawaguchi had one of the all-time great college hockey seasons, I think, um, yeah. last year. And so it's a shame we never got to see how that tournament um, would have panned out. But I think it, I think you're right. I mean, and of course, Brunovich. I mean, I, I, hopefully he's he can recover from his injury and, and we get to see more of them at the NHL level next year. Oh, yeah. Um, but I think the question is whether or not, you know, this kind of method in terms of rebuilding a program is is going to become the the new norm. Um, one of my friends uh, and, and colleagues, Evan Marinovsky, who of, is a, a Bruins beat writer and, and also covers UMass for the Daily Collegian at UMass, talked about how Greg Carville is now going to be basically the gold standard for how to rebuild a program. And you look at teams around the, the country and around Hockey East, Programs like UVM, programs mm-hmm. like Maine, maybe even throw UNH in there. You know, these are programs that, you know, UVM obviously just hired their new head coach, Reed Cashman, last year. Um, or no, sorry, not Reed Cashman. That's uh, Dartmouth, my bad. Um, they, they hired their new coach last year. Maine, of course, after the tragic loss of, of Red Gendron, they're going to be looking for a coach as well. You know, this is, I think UMass, as a public institution, first of all, um, I think they this is going to become the blueprint um, for a lot of programs who are looking to, to get themselves back into maybe to reclaim some of the, the glory days, if you will, which for UMass were not existent, but for, for other schools like Maine or, or UMass Lowell or you know, UVM, you think about the, the great goalies that they've had throughout the years. I think UMass could, this, this sort of model of building could be um, something promising for the future. It'll it'll be interesting because it and that's what people like they look at college hockey and like oh it's a four year thing that's it and like nothing there's no similarities in college hockey and the NHL it's only like thirty games in college hockey where it's eighty two well here's the thing about like the the standard of winning changed like it changes with whoever wins the championship the Blues win in twenty nineteen everyone's like oh my gosh you got to get tough and you got to get a hot goaltender and everyone all of a sudden becomes wants to become nineteen that and that's true people like to say that's not existent they think it's all a myth but it's true. UMass can show now. I'm like, hey guys, we can do this with our way. And of course, don't forget, you know, to talk about the team that UMass had to beat to get there. Scott Sandlin. Look how long it took him to make that program the power that it is today. The the 
the amount of years, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, if I can do it off the top of my head, it was 27 years in between national championship title game berths. Not wins, berths, because they made it back in 84 against, and they actually lost to Bowling Green, who was coached by the great Jerry York. Now, of course. <laughs> it, took a, it took a few years for them to get around, but Scott Sand was able to pull it around, and now UMD, even in that incredible, because that was back in the WCHA days, but now they're in this extremely tough NCHC, and they're always there at the top of the conference, showing that they can beat either the St. Clouds or the North Dakotas, or Denver had a little bit of a bad year this year, but typically Denver. And that's why I think like when you have one team that's going to win, like, oh, wow, this is the now the standard to win. And I think Carvel now has that, I don't say the responsibility, but now the title of, hey, look, guys, this is how you build a program because this is how the guys that just won this thing just did it. If that yeah, makes sense. I, oh, oh, absolutely. And I think another thing that's going to help is that I think NHL head coaches and, and, and scouts and front offices are looking at this program and thinking, wow, this is a place where we would feel comfortable. And this is a coach with whom we would feel comfortable letting our guys develop, even if it means taking an extra year so that maybe they don't burn a year of their ELCs. Like, you know, you think about it, it, guys like, like Matt Kessel, who were not unheralded, but who weren't, you know, jumping to the front of anyone's lists. He came into UMass, had an excellent freshman campaign, ends up getting drafted by the St. Louis Blues. And, now we're, we're hearing from, from Keith Kachuk that there's conversations about maybe, you know, he makes the jump. Um, but although the, the latest thing is that I think St. Louis wants him to spend um, his junior year at UMass. Or guys like Zach Jones, who, you know, was a third rounder for the Rangers. Look at how he's developed. You know, you get another guy, Josh Lopina this year, who had an excellent freshman year, has an absurd faceoff percentage, really great two-way skater. And, um, you know, he's going to end up going, you know, I think a lot of draft boards have him in the, the fourth or fifth round. So seeing that it is sustainable to leave guys in the system, I think is one of the reasons that UMass is going to continue to be successful because I think you look at, you know, maybe the mindset of someone like Matt Boldy or Trevor Zegras, guys who are first and second round talent. Eventually there's a diminishing return between staying and playing for your second or third year. Um, in pursuit of a national title at a blue blood school like like BU or BC, and nothing against those guys because by all means, like go and get paid, go right. and play, like, go and start your career. But I think there's also a place for guys who want to stick and 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 get your edu- get an education for a couple of years, um, develop a little bit more, and then make the jump to the AHL or NHL after getting a national title. And I think that's sort of what motivated Zach Jones to stick around this year. And reports out of New York from Molly Walker today that. He might be, and Frank Cervelli, that he might be uh, signing his ELC within the week. So I think it's a sustainable model. And I think it's, it's, it's a testament to, to Coach Carvel, but really the, the, institu- the institution as a whole. Yeah, and of course, talking about guys that just signed Cole Caulfield, the Hobie Baker Award winner, even though I thought Dryden McKay should have won it, but that's neither here nor there. But Cole Caulfield then goes, gets two points in his, for, in his pro debut against the Toronto Marlies. Of course, go figure, against my team. But... We talked about all that. Of course, talking about the Leafs, talking about guys that stick around for all four years and end up getting their education and moving on. How about Zach Hyman? He's not just a great forward and gives pucks to Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner. He's also a children's book author. How about that? Double du- Doing double duty there. But Nathan, we got to talk about, you know, we talked about UMass winning. Great game. Awesome plays all around. We had that 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 sick highlight reel goal by Lagunov that nobody thought was going to come out. But let's get to what Nathan Strauss did in Pittsburgh, because you were there all weekend. 
Talk about that experience because it's so interesting to look at it because, you know, it's not a packed barn like we're used to in years past. It had to be, obviously, everyone had to be spaced out a little bit. But tell us about your experience in Pittsburgh. You and UMass Reindeer out there having some fun watching the Minutemen win it all. Exactly. So first and foremost, it was a really unique experience for me because I'm so accustomed to covering UMass sports as a member of the media. Right. And this was the first time, basically since my first weekend at UMass, that I was able to go to a game or set of games as a fan. Um, it obviously came in really interesting circumstances. You know, this is just the, the, the first professional hockey game, or sorry, the first hockey game that I've been to um, as a fan since, since COVID. Um, but it was really enjoyable. I think there's something really special about the community of college hockey in particular. Um, first of all, I want to shout out as well, all of the Minnesotans out there, because every single one of you that I ran into was just so kind. Like even after the UMD game, people were coming up to me in the street and saying, congratulations, like best of luck. Um, you know, they were buying people drinks. Like it was a really special congenial environment that I think I hadn't really been a part of ever before. And I certainly think that it was something that has been missing since COVID was that sense of community and whatnot. And now that more and more people are getting vaccinated and things are potentially returning to, uh, a safer standard, at least here in the States. Um, I feel bad for everyone in Ontario right now, but at least here in the States. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just an excellent experience. And, and watching hockey as a fan is just so much fun. And being sat where I was all the way up top, um, it was definitely an interesting viewpoint because I was really able to see, you know, how the UMass 1-2-2 sets up, how they were setting up their rushes. Like, it was a, a different vantage point for me than from press row where, where I'm used to. So, by and large, very grateful that I was able to have the experience. And I'm hopeful that I'll be able to do the same thing um, next year at, at TD Garden and in 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 upcoming seasons. Yeah, well, I'm, I was hoping next year, or last year would have been great because I was getting ready. I had my credentials. I was going to go to Detroit, and then they decided that this COVID thing was a little crazy. And I'm like, well, at least they'll come back after Pittsburgh, right? Psych, NCAA says we got to wait for the next round of of national title uh, locations being announced. Boston TD Garden is obviously a great venue. I know a lot of people that go up there, they love it. But it'd be nice to go because the LCA, especially how the Joe Lewis was at the end, let's, you know, use the beautiful new LCA while we can before it turns into a dump like the JLA was. But then again, it was a, <laughs> it was a beautiful dump. I was there. I was there the last season when like all the seats were like torn apart, whenever people were trying to rip out stuffing of it to take home with it. It, it was an interesting environment. We have been chatting with Nathan Strauss. He's a, one of the broadcasters and members of the media for UMass Athletics. He was there at the national championship, the Frozen Four, saw them beat the defending champs, UMD, and then knock off St. Cloud State, ending their Cinderella run as well to become first-time national champs. Follow him at Nathan P. Strauss as well. Also check out his podcast, Corner Kick. He's obviously Nathan Strauss, a big footy fan, as I am as well. Nathan, are you a, are you an Arsenal fan? From what I think I've gotten from the tweets, there I, I, I sure am. That's and a I've, darn uh, shame. Tattoo to prove it. <laughs> darn shame. I'm a I'm a Man U guy, and I'm a I'm a Red for life. I'm a Red Devil for life. I'll never let that one go. As long as as long as I say this, as long Man U, 
I they've not had a good year this year, and I don't. And it's tough with their with their staff, whatever. But as long as they just beat City and they beat Liverpool, Arsenal, I give you guys a little bit of credit every so often. But as long as they beat those two, I'm all that's a, that all that makes me happy. Well, fair enough. Thank you for having me. I appreciate I appreciate you reaching out. Oh man, I, you know what? It's always fun to talk to people that obviously not just fans of the game of college hockey, but people that follow the game and know the game well. We had Pat Micheletti on from Minnesota before the tournament as well. It's just fun because even though this whole NHL ESPN thing's coming around as we kind of learn, I mean, well, if you were there, you didn't have some of us have to suffer and have to see the coverage for, from ESPN. It's going to get better. They're, they're, they did a good job uh, there with ESPN, but there is um. There's room for improvement on some aspects of it, but that's just that's just from my take as a fellow broadcaster, and I'm gonna leave it at that. Nathan, you were there; you got to see. It. You didn't have to hear anything. You just got to yell and scream and watch hockey. You enjoyed it, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Nathan, we'll talk to you again sometime soon, and we'll be back with more. We'll be back with State of Hoppy from the Soda Podcast here on the Kiel Show. We'll be back right after this. And welcome back to the Kiel Show, everyone. Tyler Kiel here, the Insider of the Insiders. On a show that once again has been up and down, sideways and backwards and forwards. We were able to get Shannon Walsh on from Slapshot Sweethearts podcast from the Belly Up Sports Network. That was awesome and fun. Hopefully we can salvage that interview for you folks to watch on the YouTube channel. And of course your favorite podcatcher as well on the replay. But of course you're here live on 12 Ounce Sports here on this Monday, April the 12th. Trade deadline is all wrapped up. And we were talking about, you know, Boston who made some moves and we're talking about Buffalo that decided to give everyone away for a bag of pucks and a beer. Speaking of beer, how about we talk with someone from the, you know, the land of 10 bajillion lakes. Now, hold on. It's not Pat Micheletti. We'll get him on later, guys. Calm down. We got a guy who is up from Minnesota, right in the Twin Cities. He likes the Minnesota Wild. He likes Minnesota hockey. He is one of the hosts for the Soda Pod on the Hockey Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, State of Hoppy. State, how are we doing today? Or Hoppy, how are we doing today? The Wolves here leading with Pat Micheletti. What are you doing to me? Expectations through the roof. I will say this, Hoppy. The first time we went on our live show, a good buddy of mine, Harrison Watt, Ferris State broadcaster, had him on to cap off the show, the 8 o'clock hour, here at 8 o'clock Eastern time, 7 o'clock your time there in Minnesota. He had to follow up Ken Cal of the Detroit Red Wings and Jack Michaels of the Edmonton Oilers. He was rattled, to say the least, when he knew, when he saw the lineup. He's like, why am I the last guy? <laughs> oh, man. Well, I got to say, your viewers definitely caught a lucky bounce here because I've been told that I have a face for radio and a voice for blogging. So fortunately, they don't have to deal with half of that. Well, I would tell you, if our Wi-Fi worked, we'd have to see that beautiful face of your Hoppy. But unfortunately, the the uh, the Wi-Fi gods decided to say no today. So I guess you're a little bit you're off the hook today. As are the viewers, it's perfect. But no, hey, doing doing as good as I can be, given everything that's going on. But uh, you know, even with everything that's happening down here in Minnesota right now, can't ruin one of my favorite holidays being trade deadline. Oh man, it's been crazy. Of course, Minnesota Wild having Minnesota Wild, the Twins, and the Timberwolves all postponing their games tonight. Obviously, there's a lot going on there. But let's quick before we get to the trade deadline, Hoppy. What was your reaction to the Frozen Four this weekend? We just talked with Nathan Strauss, big UMass broadcaster, big UMass supporter. He's ecstatic, but the three Minnesota teams that made it to the Frozen Four unable. You thought the odds were in their favor, unfortunately. 
Mavs go down to St. Cloud, but of course that had to happen. They faced off against each other, but then UMD bowed out in the semifinals as well. What was your take from the Frozen Four this past weekend? You know what, Tyler? My co-host on the Soda Pod is from Canada, and he's slowly trying to indoctrinate himself into Minnesota fandom. And, uh, well, this is pretty much it in a nutshell. Three out of four teams, and you don't come out with the hardware. Um, I, I will say a couple positive notes, though. First and foremost, the last year of having five Division One programs in Minnesota, yep. we got all five in for the first time in history. Next year, we jump up to six, just further cementing the state of hockey label. Um, but tell you what, UMass coming in, that's a team that I was watching out for. Uh, I actually had, before COVID jumped in, I had Michigan and them facing off in the Frozen Four to see who would go on to the championship. I, I had Michigan, but as soon as that changed, I'm like, well, I guess UMass is going to make it. But I was really hopeful with St. Cloud, Minnesota, and Mankato on the other side that we were going to get one of them pushing through and being able to joust with UMass. And, I mean, I don't need to tell anyone that watched the game. It was... Uh, Didn't go well. <laughs> No, it, it, the thing was, and I was really hoping for Mankato as well. I've, you know, I broadcasted games with Ferris State. I got to see Dryden McKay. I got to see Dryden McKay get pulled, which was the craziest thing about it. I was full Dryden McKay for Hobie Baker and, of course, Mike Richter. And then Jack LaFontaine gets the award. And I'm like, but what was the point of Dryden McKay getting the Hobie Baker nominee? But then you give it to LaFontaine, who, you know, I'm not saying LaFontaine's a bad goaltender. He had an incredible year there with the Gophers. But if you're if he's if McKay's nominated for the Hobie, doesn't that make him the best goaltender in the country? Isn't that right, Hoppy? Man, I'm a Gopher fan first and foremost, and I can't explain that debacle to you. I again, kudos to Lafontaine because, like in a normal year, he is the caliber of a Richter winner. Oh yeah, you can't nominate a goalie for the Hobie and not give him the Richter. It makes zero sense to me whatsoever. Especially, I mean, let's be real. He's got to get a couple extra votes for just that name alone. Exactly. And that's the thing, too. That's why, like, last year with Jeremy Swayman, we talked about him with Shannon Walsh earlier because he's having a good start there with the Bruins. And last year, it's like, oh, hey, he's a Hobie Baker nominee. Well, of course, he's the Mike Richter Award winner because, duh. Well, that's what makes me wonder. I don't know how it works for the voting for Hobie Baker because Minnesota State didn't really have the best game against St. Cloud in that semifinal, and it did make Dryden McKay look a little mortal, which for 95% of this season, he looked like the Terminator in net. So I don't know if that's kind of affected the voting or not, because, man, he, he had such an incredible year. Hopefully he'll stay back next year, and he'll break that Ryan Miller shutout record of most shutouts in a career, because he's, he's just a really good goaltender on a really good team. Well, and I mean, if they're going to go that route, and they're going to include the postseason, like, he outdueled LaFontaine, and Gophers have better offensive firepower anyways. So yep. the fact that he advanced over them, again, if we're going to use that as the argument, I still don't see it. So, yeah, it, I'm happy to come up with a million different ways that we can try and make sense of it, but I think we just have to agree that it makes no sense. I think, Hoppy, you and I can agree on the one thing, though, in terms of college hockey. And this is going to stink because the WCHA has this long, short history, but since the split of the Big Ten and the NCHC away from the WCHA, where it really left just Bemidji and Minnesota State as really the top two teams. Obviously, Tech had a few good years there as well. The WCHA has been one of the, I don't say bottom dwellers, but they're looked at in the same aspect of Atlantic hockey and hockey or in ECAC based on their 
their prestige compared to the NCHC's Big Tens and, of course, Hockey East. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because, like, you can't even bring pairwise into the discussion for just that reason this year because there's no out-of-conference play. Yep. I will say, though, that I, I think Mankato came into this tournament a little bit more grizzled and ready for postseason competition because, yeah, they're not going up against, like, stalwart offensive powers, but they're grinding out victories. Like, these are teams that are going to battle. you got a lot of 24-, 25-year-olds on a lot of those teams it's a way different brand of hockey that you have to compete with. And again, they dominated it. So, um, no, the WCHA is nothing like it was because in the days of old, uh, I would hear no argument that anything was better than the WCHA. I think we've almost transitioned to this point of anointing the NCHC being that next tier of just college hockey greatness. And of course... Half the teams that are good in that conference are from the old WCHA, your Denver's, North yeah, Dakota's. Go figure. go figure, right? And, of course, now they're going to become the CCHA. Now that's probably because they didn't want to go to Huntsville or didn't want to go to Alaska anymore. But I digress. I don't need to talk about the politics. But they're going to try to find a way to get a little bit more prestige, maybe getting rid of those smaller schools. But And I, I hate to use the word get rid of, but we'll just have to wait and see with that. Of course, Minnesota State finished last year before the shutdown. They were the number three team still, so I don't know. What people need to realize that Minnesota State is for real. Let's jump back on the National Hockey League side here, Hoppy. It's It's been a weird 24 hours. We saw the big move, the big fish Taylor Hall go for, like I said, a bag of pucks and a new laundry machine there for the Boston, or for Buffalo. Obviously need something new to clean up that franchise. Get it? Because it's a laundry mat. Anyways. The, the, I think the big thing for looking at the Minnesota Wild sort of thing here, Hoppy, is the fact that Bill Guerin's phone was on silent. Nothing really happened. But I ask you this, was that a good move for Bill Guerin not to go buying at the deadline? Despite this team, right now, the Wild, third in the division. They are a few points behind Vegas, but they played the Knights very well, and they're a few points ahead of St. Louis. They played St. Louis really well. Are the Wild good with what they have Right now, you think? Is that why Garen didn't make any move, big moves or selling or buying anything at the deadline? I think there's a lot that goes into that. And before I tackle all of that, I will throw out a hot take that Taylor Hall was not the trade of the deadline. I think that the last hour there, I think it actually came through after we were supposed to be done. Um, I think the Mantha trade was the trade of the deadline. That was a big one, and that's the weird thing. Like that, that hour after the deadline, that's when I was like, "Oh my gosh, three o'clock's the deadline." I'm like, "Guys, we're going to be talking about trades to like four thirty because because everyone makes the call at two fifty nine Eastern time, and it takes a little bit for them to come through." But yeah, I, that move by Mantha, and it's funny because I it was about three, oh gosh, I think it was about three thirty. I was on the phone with my dad, who is a Detroit Red Wings fan. I myself am a Leafs fan, so I'm kind of still. I'm optimistic with the Felino trade, but I'm like, okay, he'll we better win then with him. But I was talking like, and he's like, all right, you know, Ty, what's what's going on in the deadline? Well, the the wings got rid of Johnny Merrill, but have, Stevie's been doing pretty quiet right now. He's, he hasn't really gotten any of the big names. He's like, okay, do we still have Mantha? I'm like, yeah, we still got Mantha. I'm like, okay, cool. Hung up the phone. Five minutes later, Anthony Mantha gets traded to Washington. Okay, <laughs> good good for go good for Wash. Well, in the deal, that was the like I said, the probably the last big one of the day they were able to get a few players out of it because it was just mantha that went over to washington detroit gets yaka brown and richard pan a couple of low name guys verona's playing some big minutes at times but that's, that's what i'm gonna argue with you man i think verona's a player yeah. and well, I he's mean, making 3.35 he, he can get the job done man you look at his numbers 
five on five. Like he's top 20, top 25 in the league the last couple of years, as far as just what he's doing analytically. Now, granted, I think Mantha's the better player, no doubt, but I just think that Stevie Eiserman doing his best Ray Shero impression from the past decade. And just like he won that deal, no question, but Washington still got notedly better today. And I think, so, oh, go ahead, Poppy. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Oh, no, I, mean, I was just going to say, like, that's the perfect storm for everyone. Like, Eiserman gets the total win, and Washington has a real chance to make a better push right now. The picks that went to Detroit, a 2021 first-round pick, which, knowing, I don't know, Washington's a, a question mark for me because it seems like since they won the Cup, they are like, hey, we're good. Well, we'll try to compete, but it's like if we don't win, we don't care. If we lose to Carolina in the first round, nobody cares. 2022 second round pick also going to Detroit. It'll be an interesting what they use for that pick next year. Like I said, Verona's big. Uh, Richard Ponick, his career's kind of taken a little bit of a dip, but I remember him back when he was a Leaf early on in his career. He has some potential, but I think Washington, they get this deal for Anthony Mantha, and it's because they need a little bit more scoring and, to be honest, a little bit more youth. It's weird to say because Mantha, I've seen him literally come from Val d'Or through Grand Rapids up through Detroit, and I'm like, he's not a young guy anymore, but on that Capitals team, he looks like the one that's going to be the DD for those guys. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, he's never been in a situation like this where he's probably going to come in and play on the second line. He's going to be playing with the same caliber of talent on the ice, but he's going up against second line matchups instead of first. Like he's never seen that before. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting. I, I, when we get to playoff time and start making predictions, I'll still probably think Washington. I'll like, oh, they'll probably win the first round, giving that. Actually, I don't know who they'll. They may end up getting Boston. Who knows how that's all going to go? But I, I look at this going back to the Minnesota side of things here. I, I, I don't know yeah. what it is. I, I love. I don't know. I, I don't. I can never describe it. Maybe it's because they are the state of hockey. I've always had this fascination towards the Minnesota Wild. Maybe even over the Detroit Red Wings, I like all of my the American teams. I think my top two are probably Minnesota and Florida. It doesn't make any sense geographically, but just follow me on this. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I they've always oh, made absolute sense geographically. You're in Minnesota in the summer, and you go to Florida in the winter. Exactly. I'm a, yeah, one of those maybe a snowbird, right? But I mean, well, yeah. the thing, Florida's always been my dark horse. The year, of course, I don't pick them to be my dark horse to make the playoffs. They're one of the best teams in the league. Go figure. <laughs> But the Minnesota Wild, they, they didn't make any moves. But I'm, I look at this team, Hoppy, and I'm like, did they? And I'm not saying they should have made moves because I'm not going to say the Wild are a Stanley Cup contender. I'm not going to do that because, trust me, I'm a Leafs fan and the word Stanley Cup contender comes out every September and it never works out. So, but they're still really good. Yeah, they're 5 3 and 2 in their last 10 games. And yeah, they've had some tough goes. I mean, they've. Of course, they flip-flop routes with Colorado in the re- in recent weeks. But, you know, what is your take on this team this year? They're really good. They have talent. Of course, we talk about Kaprizov. He's the Calder Trophy nominee. He's the winner. Who am I kidding? I'm not even, unless something drastic happens where, I don't know, I, Alex Nedeljkovich all of a sudden becomes a starter in Carolina. He goes on a 10-game win streak. That This Minnesota team, they may make some hay in the playoffs, Hoppy. I was going to say, the Calders going to someone with the initials KK that plays for the Wild. Take your pick between the two, but... Um, Unfortunately, there's I, no such thing as a goaltender called a trophy winner. I'm a goaltender myself, and even I know that's true. <laughs> yeah, probably not. But, hey, one can dream. Exactly. Um, as far as Garen's deadline goes, I mean, I'm a huge fan of it. And first off, I'm just a fan of everything that Bill Garen does. Um, he really came into this. You, you got to look at it from a lot of different 
spectrums. You said it already, and I completely agree. They are not contending this year. If they could go in and push either Vegas or Colorado to six or seven games, that would be incredible. That is what I'm hoping for. Um, but, yeah, going out and, you know, in a weird year like this, going out and trading futures to bring in a rental it just didn't make sense. That wasn't of interest to him. So what's he looking for? He's looking for guys with term. He's looking for a guy that he's actually adding long term. And like those deals just really aren't being made right now. Those are deals that are going to be made this summer. And he doesn't want to trade off some of those one like end of their contract guys right now, like a Nick Benino, Nick Bukestead, because those are the guys that are kind of helping fuel this along. And you saw what happened at the deadline here. You're not going to get anything for them anyways. So it's kind of saying, hey, guys, you've, you've worked your way here. Let's see what you can do, right? Yeah. Like kind of rewarding them in the sense by not selling anything off when it might have made sense long-term to do so. And they're in a spot now with Judd Brackett coming in from Vancouver. Like they're, they're in a completely different developmental spot now where they can actually draft people. They can develop them internally, and they're going through the process the right way with Garen not bringing people into the fold too early or throwing a first-round pick in as a fourth-line guy when, sorry, that's not how you develop a player. Um, so no, I get it because the only real move that I've got my finger on the pulse of is where and when does Matt Dumba get traded? That had, well, oh. that's been the question for what two years, isn't it? Because it always seems like oh, he doesn't want to play on this team. It does not the. I mean, but then they keep around, and he's still even with all of this conversation, Hoppy, with the. Will he or won't he? Will he stay? Is he going to be here next year? He's still playing pretty well, right? Oh, yeah. And he it, it's never been an issue of him not wanting to be here. And largely it's been that, hey, this is a guy that has value, right? And what is the one surplus for this team? Blue line. And the bigger thing at this point, and I mean, this is something that I've kind of been saying ever since they extended Spurgeon and Brodeen, you got $27 million starting next year, sunk into your top four defensemen. That is not something that's going to work with a flat salary cap. Right. And guess which of those four does not have a no-move clause? Matthew, it's only Matt Dumba. Matthew H. Dumba. Add, yeah, and then you add the fact that the heir apparent is there. Kalen Addison is going to be an absolute monster. I'm so excited for him. That was a great move by Garen as well. And it, it, it's all there in the cards, and it sucks because Wild fans obviously makes total sense that they're infatuated with Kirill Kaprizov at this point, and Matt Dumbo's like his best friend. But guess what? You want to pay him in Fiala and Ak? You can't keep Dumba. It doesn't make sense. Oh, do we also mention the fact that there uh, that Kaprizov also has to sign because this is last year of his ELC? Should we also put that into the mix here, Hoppy? All right, and that, that's a big part of it. That's what I'm saying. You don't have cap room to keep a guy like that. And, man, I don't know what this contract's going to look like for Kaprizov because it's not going to be an eight-year and it's not going to be a bridge. Yep. You're probably falling somewhere in that five-six range, and you're probably hopefully talking seven-eight mil. I, I think that's why, and this is gonna this is coming for me. Just remember what it was like being in the locker room, or whatever, with some guys. It's make the guy feel comfortable that he doesn't want to leave for or doesn't you know he's not going to ask for too much. 
Like, hey, you want to stick around here? Well, yeah, you like having all of us around, hanging out with you, playing hockey with you, hanging out, you know, even though we really can't hang out, but like just be friends with you. Yeah. Well, you got to take a little bit of a pay cut, sir. I do apologize. Maybe one day you'll make $10 million, but right now we kind of have to be a little bit thrifty. We got to make our way down he's, to the same contract. He's, he's a Russian. That's not how that works. I, I know. That's why I think everyone's just getting all of everyone's. I, what was the shirt that was made with Kaprizov like a couple months oh, ago? Uh, there's, there's a couple. There's the Dollar Dollar Bill Kirill, and there's Kirill the Oh no, Dollar Dollar Bill Kirill. Oh, that's gonna that's gonna be a hashtag that we're gonna have to keep our eyes on. And he is a he's a ten point two. Uh, he doesn't have enough games to be a Group Two RFA, so one he would be in, ineligible for an offer sheet, according to our good friends at CatFriendly.com. Thank Jesus for that. Oh yeah, my goodness. Cause that could be, Oh, that, that, that would be, um, not good. Well, yeah. Cause we've seen, of course, talking about Anthony Mantha, he hit arbitration and Anthony C hit arbitration. And there's a lot of guys that are able to, you know, squeeze a few more dollars out. Ilya Mikheyev for the Leafs went through arbitration this year. And all of us, you know, Leafs fans going, we already paid $40 million for our first line. It's, 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 it's not pretty, but, and especially I think in, and we talked about this. My brother and I discussed this long, even before this season. We said contracts are going to suck for the next couple of years. That's why the Alex Petrangelo contract is still mind-boggling to me because, A, he hasn't lived up to it. B, that contract's going to look garbage now. <laughs> it looks bad now because of the fact that's $8 million and for so long, too. Yeah, and I mean, he hasn't lived up to it because he's been hurt. I think when he's been well, that, in the yeah. line, he's... He, to live up to that contract, I guess, isn't possible. But, I mean, he's been everything that you asked for when they signed him. I'm not going to ever blame a guy for being overpaid. That's hey, kudos. But, um, no, with the Wild and with everyone in the league, I guess, there's going to be a lot of bridge deals. And Kaprizov is the one guy that you can't afford to do that with because you don't want him skating to unrestricted free agency in two or three years. That's right. just not, not, not a good situation to be in. Just check over with the New York Rangers and ask them how that worked in their benefit. Yeah, the, the contracts are just going to be so, so wonky. I talk about the Florida Panthers, of course, and Chris, and Sergei Bobrovsky is the number two down there now behind Chris Drieger. And now Spencer Knight is going to be the number two oh, goaltender probably now as he's signed. And he's already practicing with the team. I don't know if he's NHL ready yet, but apparently. And, and, and they've got a four-man team for their goaltending excellence committee. Oh, my goodness. What oh. a cluster. They, and you know what's going to happen, Hoppy? They're going to somehow lose in the first because they'll be the number two team. They'll play Carolina and the Hurricanes, who have been in the playoffs the last three, or last couple of years and showing that they're grizzled and ready to go. They'll beat them, like in five games, because that's what's going to happen, right? Oh, and Carolina's going to be the two, but yes, I agree. Yeah, I. It's the this season, and we talked about it a little bit with Shannon, talked about it a little bit with Nathan Strauss uh, prior and earlier on in the show. It's just so weird. You don't know what's going to happen. Oh, the Leafs are the best team in the North. Well, that does not mean they could go down and beat the heck out of Colorado. But does that mean Colorado, who's been hot, could they go up and beat the Leafs? Well, we never know. But let's just stick within with the with the West Division because obviously Minnesota has to win two rounds in order to even face another team outside of their division. Now, my good buddy, a friend of the show, Believe in Podcast or Believe in Avs Podcast host Eric Pesolano big Avs fan. He is hoping and praying that the Avalanche stay in first and the Minnesota Wild stay consistent because he is terrified of Minnesota because of the last two times that Minnesota and Colorado have met in the playoffs. I mean, is hist- would history repeat itself if they met for a third time? Because 
pair of Game 7 losses and overtime losses as well, I should probably remember or remind folks. Is that going to be like something in the back of the minds if it comes to that point? If Colorado either falls off or Minnesota falls off, it'll make it really interesting if those two teams face off in the postseason. I mean, I think it's a great headline. I think when you look at how few players are carried over from those playoff rounds, like, no, I don't think it really matters. Um, I do think maybe for the few guys that were there, like, it's a little added, added motivation. But, no, at, at the end of the day, let's be real, if the Wilds match up with the Avalanche, I would be thrilled to just hold on to the horns and not get bucked off within the first, you know, five or six games. If they can make it a six- or seven-game series, I would be thrilled with that development, given that the Wild don't have a single serviceable center on their roster. That that was the big thing too, because everyone's like, oh, are they, I like, are they going to make a move for that? And I'm I'm looking at the the roster right now for the 2014 Avalanche, and the only guy that, or actually, no, they don't have a single player from that team. Of course, then again, they had the great names of P.A. Parento and Cody McLeod. And Alex Tangay, or at least what was left of him, was on that roster. <laughs> Gosh, 2014 was seven years ago. It seemed like two decades ago compared to this yeah, roster. Really. Holy, oh, actually, it was, pardon me. Gabriel Landis, Goggin, Nathan McKinnon. Pardon me. Those are the only two guys. And Eric Johnson. So three guys. I apologize. Three players from that 2014 team are there. J.S. Shiger is long retired, though, right? <laughs> I don't know. Can he ever officially retire? Well, it's either him or Hashik have to retire first. And Hashik is, as far as I know, he's in the Hall of Fame, but I hear the Czech 3 team over there has given him a tryout, so I'm not sure. I mean, let's just agree that neither of them will outlast Yager. So. Oh, man. Yager is still tearing up. And, of course, then again, he owns that the, the Czech 2 team that he's playing for right now. But, man, I I was really hoping that he would get there. I He'd stick around. Hope that I was really hoping his back didn't give out in Calgary because I, I was, for me, it wasn't a points thing. It was... If he can beat Gordy Howe's number of games played, I think that was what I was pulling for for Yager because he's still in shape. Unfortunately, he's not in NHL caliper shape, at least compared to all these young speedsters that are in the league nowadays. Yeah, it, it's a different game for sure. Looking at now, as we kind of we talked about Kirill Kaprizov and how you said that there may be another Calder trophy winner from Minnesota with the initials KK. We got to look at the goaltending here for Minnesota because I don't know what it is, Hoppy, but it seems like when the Wild are a team that has a chance to do something in the playoffs, they seem to have two goaltenders. Because I remember back in 2015 when Dubnik, was it 2015 or, yeah, 15 was the first year for Dubnik, right? Or was that Kemper's first year? Was that? Oh, man. Now it's all blending together. Oh, man. Because I, I remember the, oh, boy. Let me pull it back up here. Nope, we're pulling it up. Hockey reference, come save me now. Well, because I remember, because even when it was Kemper, it was Kemper and Harding. And then it became Dubnik and Harding, or uh, and Kemper. Two very good goaltenders, and they were able to go either one or the other. Mike Yo was the coach at the time for that Minnesota Wild team, and they were really good. They're, yes, the 2016 team, the team that lost to Dallas in the first round, that was Dubers and Kemper. By the way, Dubnik now a Colorado Avalanche, if you are just joining us. And, of course, if you've been asleep for the last 24 hours, and if you are, good for you. You're probably well-rested. The 2015 team was also Dubnik, Kemper, and, oh, look at that, Nicholas Backstrom. He was on that team. There's a name from the past for you, Hoppy. Hey, man, he – it's so funny because everyone just looked at the last year or two 
for any player. And, like, he gets such a bad rap, but he, in his prime, dude could ball out. Oh, he was he was really good, and everyone called him the second Backstrom. And we should mention that 2014 team because, Hoppy, you probably remember this. I'm pretty sure, if I'm not mistaken, they used – no, they only used two goaltenders. Darcy Kemper was the starter because Josh Harding had gotten hurt at that point. The backup goaltender who actually played in that series against the Colorado Avalanche. Could you remember who that was, Hoppy? Backup for the Avalanche. No, no, no. Sorry, for Minnesota. I'm sorry, Minnesota. Kemper, oh. Kemper and Harding were the two, the one-two during the season for the majority of it because Backstrom got hurt. Harding gets hurt late in the season. They only used two goaltenders. Kemper was the starter, but who was the backup for the Wild in the playoffs in 2014? I gotta guess, and uh, the, the years, like you said, seven years ago feels like a million. I'm gonna go with Kudobin. No, it was not Kudobin. It was none other than the astronomer himself, Ilya Berzgalov. Oh, no. Ilya Berzgalov. Oh. He went three and six because Kemper also got the bag in that playoff as well. That and that's why I want. That's why it's so funny to look at that team that beat Colorado because they had a young Kemper who was still very good, albeit. But they also had to use Berzgalov to win that series. And I just, I still. I look back and I'm like, man, Ilya Berzgalov, outcast, albeit, but they were able to pull that off. But that's to my point, though, is that Minnesota just found a way that whenever they need it, they can have two goaltenders. This year, it's Cam Talbot and Capo Kakinen. Kakinen, who we've I've followed for the last few years, a great goaltender. I'm like, this is going to be one of the next big prospects, best goaltending prospects, because He's talented. He can play at the AHL level. And when he was getting his, some of his stints in the NHL, he was certainly holding his own. And then they bring in Cam Talbot, who was able to steal the job from Dave Riddick in Calgary last season, ended up being the starting goaltender during the playoffs for the Flames. Looked pretty good. The team in front of him decided to take a big poop against Dallas. But the, he showed that he could still be, he wasn't quite the Vesna candidate he was back in 16-17, but he was still pretty good. Comes to Minnesota now, I'm like, wow, Minnesota, for the first time in a few years, seeming like they have a number one goaltender and a possible good solid number two, or as we've seen now, a 1B in Kapokakinen. That's got to be a little bit of a relief for this wild team, Hoppy. And you took the words right about out of my mouth. It, it's an absolute 1A, 1B situation, and the beauty is I don't think anyone could say for certain which one's the 1A. Um, they've both been unbelievable this year. Um, and Kakinen, make no mistake, like coming into this season, no one had ordained him the next one by any means. Like he had a couple of games in the NHL last year. Yeah, he was the best AHL goalie last year, but we've seen a lot of AHL studs in that that did not at all translate to the NHL. And it's really reassuring to see that he's made that move. But, you know, the bigger thing is you look at last year and just how awful the goaltending was. First off, that's just a statistical anomaly. Like, I'm convinced that even if they brought back the same goaltending, they would be doing better this year just from regression. But then you get, again, the up-and-comer in Kapo Kakinen, and then you get a guy in Cam Talbot, which I was initially a little skeptical on. I kind of pushed back, mostly on giving him three years. But Bill Guerin's been pretty candid in saying that he – very much brought him in intentionally. Like, yeah, he's not the best goalie in the league. No one thinks he is. But you look at the Wild and how sound they are defensively and the kinds of shots that they're allowing and the ones that they're suppressing, and he just fits so perfectly with that. So you've got, again, we got the regression from last year. We've got two goaltenders who are much better suited for this. 
and they're doing a great job of handling the Nets together. Like neither of them have the ego that they need to be the number one. And I would be lying if I said that I haven't been confused at times with how they've deployed the goalies this year, but it's working. So I guess that makes me the idiot. Well, not necessarily. I mean, okay, I'll be honest with you. I was doing my work for the hockey writers past summer, and I was doing some Minnesota Wild offseason stuff. And, you know, I, I don't know what it is. I'm always I'm the big underdog guy when it comes to literally everything. I love the underdog story. That's why when Devin Dubnik had his resurgence with the Wild, I'm like, this is awesome. Because I remember the year before he became the number one guy in those playoffs for Minnesota, I was watching him back up Dustin Tokarski in Hamilton in the American Hockey League. <laughs> yeah. I, and, I, and that's why I love those stories. And so when I saw Alex Stalock able to, you know, be the number one guy for the first time in his career, I thought, all right, maybe this is his turn. This is going to be his time because Dubnik's gone. He'll be the number one guy. Maybe someone else come up, Capo Kakin will be the backup, him and Stalock. And then Stalock gets hurt and they sign Talbot. And I'm like, okay, they'll go with this instead. But it's worked. And Kakin, and here's the thing too, you know, you talk about good goaltending prospects. As far as I know, Hunter Jones is, had a couple of laughers, but he's had a couple good games at the Iowa Wild, and he's going to be a guy that I'm pretty sure that Bill Guerin and the Wild are going to want to develop because eventually, like we said, Talbot's not getting any younger, and if you can have two good goaltenders and possibly Hunter Jones and Capo Kakinen that are both of the in the age bracket between 20 and 30, that means you have two good goaltenders for possibly the foreseeable future. Hey, buddy, did you watch the national championship game? I may or may not have the guy. Yes, uh, we discussed that with Nathan Strauss. Yes, Philip Lindbergh, who now, hold on, before you go, yes, Philip Lindbergh, don't forget, he did not start the season as number one goaltender, but he did, as I'm pretty sure you're going to mention, he earned the number one job as the number one goaltender there for the Minutemen. Well, and I mean, I I don't care if he started the season that way or if he only played in that game. He got a shutout in the championship game, and he is also a Minnesota Wild prospect. Yep, that's why I made sure I mentioned that, because... I knew where he soon as he did watch the national championship game, and I'm like, Philip Lindbergh. And a guy that, I mean, he, he, and I said this with Nathan Strauss from UMass just a little bit before we had you on, we did talk about it because, like, he was not going to be the guy going in. Matt Murray was the veteran goaltender, and typically with college hockey, you, you give the, you know, tie goes to the veteran, and that's how it was going to be. But then Murray dipped a little bit, and Philip Lindbergh just took the rein, and he became one of the best goaltenders. And we discussed this. Had he played the full season, he may have been a candidate for the, or a better candidate for the Mike Richter award, the way he played down the stretch in the hockey tournament. And obviously now a national champion. And I don't think, and the big thing I think with that hoppy is that I think they see that he is still young and they do have, you know, two good goaltenders right now. They're not going to rush him development wise to get him to come play pro hockey. Now they're going to let him sit in college hockey, which will actually probably help him before he finally makes the jump to the pro level. Oh, yeah, and I'm not at all indicating that he should be coming up with the squad next year or even right now. I'm just saying it's to get one more goaltender in the pipeline. And I do have to mention, too, kind of like I said with Backstrom, like Dubnik had some awesome years here. Like, it really was a great story, and he was very needed for those years for the Wild to actually get into the playoffs. And just like with Backstrom, he's probably going to always have that sour taste because his last year and a half here – he just wasn't good. Yep. And it's a bummer because like he really was a big spark for the team when he came in and had that resurgence. And I guess to go for full circle on all this, because you mentioned how Talbot beat out Riddick and now we got Dubnik going to the avalanche. When I saw what the, the cost was for the Leafs to get Riddick, 
I don't know why they wouldn't have, the abs wouldn't have gone for Riddick instead of Dubnik. That, that blew my mind. I think it's a way better pickup to add Riddick. Well, and I think the thing, the reason why the Leafs went after him right away and probably got him first was because Riddick, for some reason, has this one problem with the Leafs where he decides he's going to make 39 of the 40, shot, 40 saves he faces because I don't. It, it, it's crazy how good he's been against the Leafs, and that's probably when it went after him. But I think the reason why the Avs get Dubnik is they don't need a guy to be the backup. Obviously, you know, Grubauer and Francois, as we've learned a little bit, injury prone, but the fact that they have three goaltenders. But of course, I mean, shoot, Michael Hutchinson, who is now the, well, I think he's the backup with the Leafs. Now I don't know with Dave Riddick coming in. But Hutchinson almost saved the season for Colorado, for goodness sake. So sometimes you just have those guys in the playoffs. Maybe Dubnik saved the day for you, right? Yeah, the difference is when you're one of the top contenders for the Cup, you're not going to bank on Hutchinson saving your season, just like you shouldn't bank on Dubnik to do the same. And granted, if you have a healthy you know, top two goalies over there, yeah, you're fine. But we've seen the last couple of years, they don't stay healthy. And if you end up with Dubnik as your starter in the playoffs, maybe the Wild are beating the Avalanche. It, it's so weird because, well... And I, it's funny, I actually somehow I made a uh, a guest fan phone appearance in a, on a radio because I was in Denver during that series against Dallas for Colorado. And I called the guy in. He's like, you know, it's like, what is happening with the Colorado Avalanche? They're playing bad. And I remember I called him up and it was, I think it was after they lost game two to Dallas. And I was honest with him, like, listen, this is a very young hockey team. This is a team that just walked through Arizona and was able to walk in, walk out unscathed. Nothing happened in that series. They just you know, bolstered up their statistics. Nothing else happened. It was playing against a minor league team, it seemed like. Now they're going up against a Dallas team that's better. I mean, I think maybe, I, that's why I think Colorado's going to be a much better team this year. They realize, wow, we can be offensive as all we can be. We can light up the scoreboard as much as we want against Arizona and Los Angeles, all we want during the regular season. But until we play a structured defensive team or a tough team, they're not going to be the contenders. That's why I see Colorado at the top of that West Division. I'm like, all right. We've seen it before. Are you going to be able to make it pay off in the playoffs? Now, with that, well, oh, go ahead, Pop. go ahead, Hoppy. I was going to say. I mean, you hit the nail on the head, though. Address the defense. They have a little bit more defensive discipline on forward, but they've overnight become one of the best blue lines in the league. And obviously, that's equal parts offense and defense on their blue line. But still, your top pairing is Caves and Gerard. You've got McCarr sitting on your second pairing. And you've got no shortage of depth. And that's without your latest first-round pick on defense being thrown into the fold because he's been hurt. Yep. Like, they are just spoiled with depth at blue line. And, of course, they did just pick up as well. Speaking of defensive depth, they just got Patrick Nemeth back from the Detroit Red Wings. And they just got Carl Soderberg back as well. Obviously, he's not a defenseman. He's a center. But they're just trying to add more depth because they've realized that, yes, you have McKinnon. You have Landeskog. You have Makar. However, if something happens to one of those guys, you need guys that can kind of come up from behind them, and that's what's going to make Colorado so dangerous this year. But looking at it from the wild sort of things here, Hoppy, what are the – I mean, we mentioned before they are not contenders. That's why Billy Guerin didn't sell the Iowa Wild to some other team, some other suitor, to try to find one big player. He did, Obviously, that's probably, the, that's probably the GM of the year move right there by – because some other maybe inexperienced general managers, because this is Billy Garrett by himself, only his, what, third year now with the team, right, Hoppy? 
Uh, second. Second, you're right. And a lot of guys are like, oh my gosh, we got to make the big move because, you know, we got we have a team that can win. We can win it all. No. Billy Guerin, of course, then again, he worked with a good guy there in Jim Rutherford there in Pittsburgh. He kind of knows what it takes to build the Stanley Cup winning team. You don't just sell or you don't just get rid of your prospects just to maybe, ha- maybe have a shot to win. You want to be certain, certain and guaranteed you have a chance to win the Cup. That's what I think that oh. makes this big thing with Billy Guerin so important that he didn't make any big moves. No, 100%. And again, I think if it's a year where they're actually a legit contender, completely different story. But again, he saw that from his days in Pittsburgh. He was brought in for that exact purpose, to help them win the Cup in 09. Yep. But, you know, it it is just a big thing here that this is a team that's nowhere near ready. Because guess what? Yeah, goaltending's important. Blue line's important. I am a staunch believer that you do not win a Stanley Cup without being strong down the middle, first and foremost. Yep. And the Wild could not be shallower at it. Their best centerman, which love his play, great player, but Jewel Eric's neck is not a first-line center, should not be. He is an okay second-line center, and if you're a true contender, like really going for a cup, he's your third-line center. Yep. And that's your current best center right now. And no one else that's playing center on the roster right now will probably be here in the next couple of years when they're actually making pushes for cups. So that's why you're not going to pick up that center in the off season. There's no way that you're or, sorry in the, at the trade deadline, maybe this off season is when you solve something like that. And Hey, I'm totally fine throwing Matt Dumba a first, even throw a prospect in there. If you're getting a legit number one center back, but otherwise, it's going to be grow from within. You've got Rossi and who's Nadinov from this last draft. Who knows who's going to be available with one or both picks this year that they have now that they've got Pittsburgh's pick. And, hey, free agency is always a thing. I'm a big believer that they should go after uh, well, the man that's left out on the side of the curve out in Montreal. Oh, yeah, because they're, they're, there is a lot. Of center. I mean, that's the thing, too, with – with this year, with the whole trades, and that's why I think getting Nick Foligno for the Leafs was such a crazy thing. Oh, he's going to have to sit for a week, and now we see Eric Stahl going up there and end up scoring in the first game, the game-winning goal on that one. <laughs> but, I mean, look at, I mean, I'm looking at the cap friendly right now. I just want to make sure I got the names right. Of course, you have Matthew Boldy, who just signed his ELC. Or is he, or, yeah. no, yeah, he just signed his ELC from Boston College. And, of course, cannot forget, Ferris State legend, Jerry Time, Gerald Mayhew as well. You got him in your system as well. <laughs> He's going to be your number one center in three years. Count it there, Hoppy. <laughs> hey, not by at all. Love, I would love for you to be right in this scenario. I don't see it, but I hope that you can laugh at me in a couple of years. That would be wonderful. Harrison Watt and I are like that. Yeah, Jerry Mayhew, Jerry time forever there in Minnesota or Iowa. It doesn't really matter. Whichever, as long as he's having fun and because he's probably the best fair state bulldog in the last probably five or six years. But anyways, going back now <laughs> to the Minnesota Wild, wrapping up here. What... Where do you see this team ending up? Are they a team that, because I'll be honest with you, you look at how good Vegas is this year, but look how good Minnesota has played Vegas this year. Because if the playoffs were today, they would get Vegas in the first round. Obviously, Vegas would be two. They get the home ice advantage. You know, what is the best case scenario for this Minnesota team? Are they going to be a team that's able to make it to the division final? Or are they a team that's going to have a good tough series with Vegas, but unfortunately experience will take over for the Vegas Golden Knights, even though their centers are a little bit questionable as well. You know, where, how far do you think this team can go this year? 
Well, Vegas' centers are leagues beyond ours still. Um, I mean, if I'm being a realist, again, going to six or seven games and losing is still a huge, huge push in the right direction for the Wild. Could they win that first matchup? Hey, I like their odds against Vegas way better than going up against Colorado. But, I mean, let's be real. Vegas has chinks in their armor. Like you've seen, they've got a little bit of injury proneness with their defensemen. If they lose Petrangelo or Theodore, that's a problem. Uh, everyone wants to talk about how Marc-Andre Fleury is just a locked and loaded Hall of Famer, and I'm sorry, I just don't agree. I love him as a player, and I think he's great, and maybe he'll earn that spot eventually, but he is not cemented, and guess what? He has shown that he can absolutely crumble and be the reason they lose. So it's not impossible, but that said, the Wild coming into this season, I had them as being a 4-5 swing team in this Honda division, and the fact that they've clearly outshot that, and as of now, they're probably going to finish in that three spot, like, that alone is a huge step in the right direction. So I'm thrilled already. As long as they don't get embarrassed in their playoff matchup, whether it's against Colorado or Vegas, I'm calling that a win. Yeah, I, I I know there's no such thing as brownie points or moral victories in the playoffs. Obviously, if you get knocked out, you get knocked out. But for where this Minnesota team was, they were the number, they were the tenth seed heading into the bubble last year. Didn't quite go so well against the Canucks. Obviously, Staylock tried to do everything he could in that series oh, to keep Minnesota. He, he man, I I literally thought to myself like this is going to be the reason why Minnesota even wins. Of course, then again, he went up against Jacob Markstrom, who was having an incredible year. And then Markstrom got hurt. And then Thatcher Demko had to try to save the season for Vancouver. It seemed like last year was the year of the backup. Except for Tampa, of course, with Vasilevsky. Well, he's, man, I've been on Vasilevsky since before he was the starter. That guy is just a freak of nature. But I will, I'm going to, I'm going to give a nugget, a little gift here for you and any of your viewers. If you haven't already, go straight to YouTube and search Staylock Superfans. It will be the best decision you've made today. Man, I thought I was a big fan of Staylock, but a Staylock super fan? Oh, man, it's literally a parody of, uh, so it's four guys in the college dorms when he played for UMD. Oh, yeah. And they're doing a spoof on the SNL Bear super fans. Oh. And it's hilarious. It, <sighs> it's so over the top, but it's incredible. We actually, so we commented on it when, uh, Michael Russo down here in Minnesota brought Staylock on his podcast, and we just slipped in, like, you have to ask him about this. And he did, and Staylock lost, and he's like, I can't believe you know about those videos. <laughs> People <laughs> they find... They are hilarious. The internet is an awful thing. I think I'm going to have to do that when we go off the air in a little over half an hour, because now I'm interested, yeah. because I'm... I, I Like I said, I love those underdog stories. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping Staylock turns it around. Unfortunately, Gosh, if there's been a goaltender that is as talented as he is, that's been more injury prone, I have not met him. Maybe Josh Harding's probably the only other one I could possibly think of, Hoppy, that's been that is talented, that can be an everyday NHL goaltender. Just seemingly the injury bug just follows him around like a cloud over his head on a rainy day. Leave it to Minnesota to break every goalie known to man. Hey, you gave Berzgalov one last glimmer of hope. I'm pretty sure you could save some other goaltender. <laughs> Man, uh, I still can't. That's one thing I have to remind myself that Berzgalov was a Minnesota Wild goaltender. It's still, it still like rattles me a little bit, like kind of scares me. Well, man, you talk about all the great ones have had. You're just skipping over all the really bad ones. 
Like they have. Oh, are we gonna? They have we... some real ups and downs. They either are totally on top of goaltending, or it's like bottom ten percent goaltending. Well, we cannot forget Hoppy, their first ever playoff appearance back in 03, the team that made it oh, to the Dwayne. conference finals. Dwayne Rollison and Michigan boy Manny Fernandez. D Roll and Manny. My yes. goodness. And they go up against the cheater himself that we mentioned earlier, J.S. Jaguar. Oh man. And well, the cheater back when you could cheat and he had this well, J.S. Jaguar had the same <laughs> chest pro- hey, he had the same chest protector size as Patrick Waugh, but you couldn't beat him. <laughs> That's what and you didn't have Andrew Burnett's little luck there in that series against the Ducks. No, no. And, hey, that's a team that overachieved, too. But, oh, what a run that was. I think that's what really injected the first life into Minnesota Wild fans. I, I think that's why they still – because who was I talking to about the Wild a few weeks ago? Like, for some reason, it seems like for like, for good chunk of years there – actually, it was uh, my good buddy, John Elko. I work with the radio station here in uh, Grand Rapids – he is from Minnesota, and he said for the longest time it was so hard to get tickets for the Wild because so many people, like so many season ticket holders, wanted to go to games because there's still that big North Stars fan base that was around. And the fact that that team went to the conference finals in year three, oh, one, two, three, yeah, year three, it pretty much helped the franchise stay afloat for those dark years as well after the lockout. You know, it's a blessing and a curse, though, man, because that's largely why the wild have been just stuck in this purgatory of mediocrity. They're always right there on the cusp. They're either the last team in or the first team out of the playoffs every year. You don't get good draft picks and Oh, when you don't know how to draft that hurts even more. And you just get stuck in this pattern of always going for it. When like we've seen it from all of the great teams, right? You have to retool, you have to rebuild or you're just going to keep being Meh. Well, what are you talking about? I thought Paul Fenton did a great job. (laughs) He actually did a great job on the talent side. He just doesn't know how to work and co-mingle with other humans. If you could just lock him in a lab and just let him make trades and draft players, yeah, he's fine. Just being a a personable individual, man. Well, And it's it's funny because we talk about the Vegas Golden Knights. I... I I don't want to say I can't wait for it to happen because it makes me sound like an absolute jerk, but eventually it's going to happen where all these contracts they have with all these older players are going to come back to bite the Knights in the butt. But the fact that the Knights have been so good for their first few years of their franchise existence, it's going to help the, it's going to help the franchise stay afloat for the foreseeable future. Cause there's so many fans that just, you know, were just kind of swarmed to this team in years one, two, now three and four that they're going to be, they will be able to survive and still sell out the T-Mobile arena for years to come because they started off so well early on in their history. See, I agree with that way more than Minnesota because guess what? Minnesota, already the state of hockey, already had hockey crazy fans who shouldn't have lost their team to begin with. We don't need to get into that because it's going to be another two hours, but you know they were going to sell tickets with or without that sustained success early on. Vegas needed it for sure. Cause sure. They actually are like an underrated hockey market. There's fans out there, but you needed to have that excitement. Them making it to the finals the first year, they were cemented right there and then that they were set for the next decade. Even if they came back and sucked to the next year, they were good for selling those tickets, especially with the show that they put on an arena. They're meshing so perfectly with everything that Vegas does. So 
with them, I completely agree with you. Yeah, it's it. You're right. It is different. Minnesota's got the the. I mean, the hockey fan base, of course, at Dinah has. I mean, it has a great program, and I actually was able to watch. Don't, a, don't I, talk to me about the cake eaters. No, oh no, 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 I can't do that. Can't talk about a Dinah at all. I'm sorry. Can't. I, well, I just don't have nearly enough cake to eat right now for this discussion. <laughs> Who uh, about to say I wasn't able to catch? I was able to watch some of the tournament um, uh, with a local forty-five out there. Um, I didn't. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's how. Well, it's the only way to watch it. I'm just saying. I'm glad it's on there now because they're kind enough to live stream it because it's so hard to. It used to be so hard because the finals were always on Fox Sports, uh, Fox Sports North, so we couldn't watch the games here in Michigan. So thankfully now they're online at least, and I'll tell you, it, my the, my wife had never experienced it before. I, I, and she now granted my wife, I met her and she was not the biggest hockey for person. She's a big Michigan state fan, Detroit Tigers fan, baseball and football, typical Americana. But yep. she met me diehard Leafs fan, hopeless romantic Leafs fan. And she's like, what in the world is this? I'm like, you're just going to go on this ride and you're not going to be able to get off. And, but, oh, man. but it's and I, she kind of fell in love with my Canadian fandom. Like we go to Toronto all the time, but I tell him like, you know, Minnesota's really great as well you know it's big on hockey he's like what do you mean and we were watching some of the tournament this past year and she's like oh, like i she's I'm like wow that's a really good broadcast i got this looks professional I'm like yeah and then i showed her like i think a game from two years ago like in the 2019 back when you could have fans believe it or not hoppy remember guys when uh, you could have full- hey hey last live event that i went to before everything went downhill with this world was the state tournament last year and it was a blast, and I cannot recommend an event more highly than the Minnesota High School Hockey Tournament. The tourney. It, and I remember I showed it to her, she's like, wait, is that a packed house there in St. Paul? I'm like, yes. She's like, we can't even, like, our best high school hockey teams, like, we, you know, even on a normal year, I did the states the last two years, or I was going to do it last year, but I'd been to state championships over in the east side of the state before, even with like the big programs, the brother rice or whatever, and all that stuff, the cake eaters in this state over there, they're hoppy for you. They're all in the, the Detroit side, the gross point area and all that stuff. They like, they don't even sell out little USA hockey arena where the U S national development team plays. Can't even sell that out. You go to an NHL arena in Minnesota. That thing is filled to the brim and people are still outside waiting for tickets. It's insane. Oh, no, 100%. There's, there's a lot of people who are left sad that they can't get in. My, uh, one of our sponsors, actually, Second String Leather Company up here in the corner, they were at the tournament last year as one of the vendors, and they right. knew what they were getting into when they went in there, but they were like, it's so much different when you're there. Completely agree. It's it's something I was, I was hoping I was able to do it maybe this year, but obviously COVID. I was hoping maybe maybe next year. Maybe next year I'll be able to go check out and get a little bit of a look of the, the all-hair team for that state tournament. <laughs> Was, yeah, that's a more recent gimmick, but it's a good one. I enjoy it. It is fun. We have been chatting with the State of Hoppy, one of the hosts on the Soda Pod. He is on there with Romy every Sunday. Or hold on, I just had it. Is it every Sunday or Thursday? Sunday and Thursday. Every Sunday and Sunday Thursday. Sunday and Wednesday. Oh, it's Wednesday. I do apologize. I had it on right up on my notes, but I somehow lost it. Sunday and Wednesday. The episodes go up on demand on Monday and Thursday. That's where I got the Thursday part on the Hockey Podcast Network. Check them out. Make sure you get on there. Use the promo code THPN when you go on DraftKings. I had to use that because I just looked at their Twitter bio because I decided to start reading all that cool stuff. But 
They talk about Minnesota Wild. They talk about all the good stuff surrounding the game of hockey. Check them out and all their stuff over there at the Hockey Podcast Network. Those guys do a lot of great stuff over there. Hoppy, make sure you follow them at State of Hoppy as well. Thank you very much for, t- for joining us today, talking about the Wild, talking about the NHL. Certainly was a blast. We'll definitely have to talk to you. Maybe we get closer to playoff time. Maybe a Colorado Minnesota series. I know the numbers don't look good on paper, but unfortunately, championships are not won on paper, Hoppy. That is accurate. I can't. I can't fight that. Cannot fix that. Hoppy, we'll definitely talk to you sometime soon. Have a good time with Romy and uh, enjoy the rest of the season, man. Hey, really appreciate it, Tyler. It's been fun. All right, and that was State of Hoppy of the Soda Pod. The Soda Pod. I know, right? Soda Pod. What do you mean Soda Pod? Like soda? Nope. Soda. Like Minnesota. It's funny. It's a play on words, guys. We're still live here for the last the last half hour. I, like I said, I do apologize for all the folks that were... I was really excited for the Shannon Walsh interview. Hopefully, like I said, we can salvage it a little bit. Um, I don't know exactly what, what all happened with that. I don't know why we had issues during that video chat, which is funny because they do video chat themselves, uh, Romy and Hoppy, for their show. So... Like I said, probably, I don't know if we're going to put it on the podcast form, unfortunately, simply because of the fact that the the quality just kind of was not the best for audio. So what we'll do is we'll try to, we're going to get Shannon on again. There's no question about it. We're going to get Shannon on again. Obviously, maybe get closer to playoff time. Talking about those two other guys. Uh, we have, of course, we had Nathan Strauss on in between those two. And of course, we just talked with Hoppy. Great interviews all around. Uh, I'm I'm bummed because I thought I thought we had it to work. I thought the Wi-Fi was working. I mean, it's working now, no problem. Look at this. We're we're streaming cleanly. There's no glitches. Everything's great. Uh, that's a bummer because I like doing those live video chats because you get to see the people talk. And of course, we'd love to see Hoppy talk. And you know, of course, you can see him talk with Romy on Mondays and Thursdays, Sundays and Wednesdays live on the Hockey Podcast Network at the Soda Pod on Twitter. But Air in the final 25 minutes of the show, you know what we should do, guys? We should definitely talk about the rest of the trades because there were a lot of trades today, guys. So let's get into, let me, let's go through the big ones here first. We talked about, of course, Taylor Hall going from Buffalo to Boston. We talked about that with Shannon. It's a, a move that every Buffalo fan is just struggling with, mainly because they're, they're still trying to figure out why in the blue blaze in hell that they literally gave a second-round pick and nobody else. They literally gave nothing. Nothing. For... Oh, I turned... Hello? Hello. There we go. I somehow... So I hit the button. I hit I hit a wrong button here, folks. Uh, if you're just... If you're watching it on the live stream... Uh, hit the phantom button on my uh, mixer, and I don't know why I hit it because we lost this mic because this mic needs phantom power. Dummy Tyler here, Blondie, woo! Yeah, go for the blondes. So, back to Taylor Hall. The Buffalo Sabres over the past two weeks just gave up literally nothing. They they received nothing in these trades the last couple of weeks. Talking about, like I said, the move to Taylor Hall. Curtis Lazar and Taylor Hall going to Boston for Anders Bjork and a 2021 second round pick. It, if you are going to sell the top guy, 
on your team and probably the, like I said, the big fish, you know, what are you even, is that really the best you can get for him? You're telling me that no one else would give a first for him. Nick Felino, And I love Nick Felino. We'll get to that trade here in just a minute. Even he, he had two picks for him. Two picks and a prospect. Now, there, yes, there were three teams involved in this trade, but like I said, we'll get to that. You give Brandon, you give Brandon Montour to the Florida Panthers also last week. Actually, two days ago, pardon me, on Saturday. For a 2021 third-round pick. Now, yes, Brandon Montour, probably not the same level as Taylor Hall, but when he's clearly one round of difference, because at that point, second and third-round picks are just about the same at some point. I And I... And this is my thing about this. It's the league, Bill Zito, Don Sweeney, taking advantage of an inexperienced general manager and Kevin Adams. Kevin Adams, who was a part of the financial team for the Buffalo Sabres, for goodness sakes. He was not an assistant GM. He was not a member of Hockey Ops. He was a part of the business side of this franchise. However, the Pachulas are big fans of him. They like going out to dinner with him. They like chatting it up with him. But what happens now? You literally get almost nothing for what was the one of the biggest free, biggest free agent pickups of the offseason and who was the big fish going into the trade deadline. I tried to get Jordan DeShane on on the show today. Of course, we had him on from the Hockey Writers, covers the Buffalo Sabres. Wasn't able to make it, unfortunately. Had prior engagements. Of course, I understand that because, well, when you text someone at about 4 o'clock and ask them to come on the show, it's very hard to get them to come on. I wouldn't expect anyone to come on after only two hours. But regardless, I don't know what you expect from this hockey club. What can they do to get better? If you have decisions that are made by your upper echelons that are made, that make you kind of look like dummies. But... I digress. Buffalo is going to be in trouble for a while. Going now over, take a quick look at the this, the moves we talked about with Colorado when we talked with Hoppy there. Patrick Nemeth going to the Avalanche from Detroit. Detroit gets a 2022 fourth round pick from him, and the Wings retain half of his $3 million salary. They take 1.5. Devin Dubnik, we talked about him. He's going over from San Jose. Greg Pattern and a 2021 fifth round pick going to the Sharks. A couple of other smaller ones. John Merrill going to Montreal for Hayden Verbeek, a prospect, and a 2021 fifth-round pick. That's This one's an interesting one because it's one of the few picks that was traded to a team that was not from the original team. Montreal, that they gave up their pick from that they received from Ottawa. And so that, that was one of the few times because you'll when I get to these other picks, you'll see that that doesn't happen quite often. At least it hasn't happened too often this year. We talked about, of course, the Leafs. The Leafs getting really busy. Dave Riddick going to Toronto for a 2022 third-round pick. And here's the kicker. The Leafs were able to convince Brad Living to take half of that and put that back in his pocket. Only the Leafs are paying 1.375. The big one for the Leafs, Nick Foligno and Stefan Nason. No, no, that's obviously a big one. But... The Leafs get Stefan Nason from San Jose and or the Nick Foligno and Stefan Nason from San Jose because Columbus gave Foligno to San Jose and then get flipped it to Toronto. Toronto gives San Jose their 2021 fourth round pick. They give the Blue Jackets the 2021 first round pick and a 2022 fourth round pick. Now, why is this a big deal? Why is San Jose the middleman here? 
A, they get a pick out of this, even though there's nothing they really gain other than that fourth round pick. But since they need to take on some money, they were able to take half of Nick Foligno's contract, which Nick Foligno's contract is currently sitting at $5.5 million, which does expire this year. So that said, Nick Foligno was, so yeah, San Jose is getting, taking on 2.75 of that contract. They flip it now to Toronto. Toronto only pays half of that. They're only paying 1.375 for Foligno. They are paying a quarter of Foligno's contract to come play for Toronto. Kyle Dubas is doing this masterful gymnastics of the cap right now. By the way, the Leafs are down right now to Montreal. They were, last time I checked, I didn't want to put them up on the screen in here because obviously we're having Wi-Fi issues. I want to do that. They are trailing 2-0 in the second period. Also got other scores. Detroit and Carolina tied at zero early in the second. Chicago and Columbus tied at one early in the second. And Ottawa and Winnipeg tied at two early in the second. So, so far, score, you know, scoreless, one goal or 1-1 one, one game, 2-2 two, two game, and the Leafs are down by two. Arizona and Colorado coming up later tonight. Vegas and LA and Anaheim and San Jose are the nightcaps out west. But going back to this deal here for the Leafs and how Kyle Dubas has just shown that he is no longer the guy that bends over backwards for William Nylander or Mitch Marner or John Tavares just to get him to come to Toronto. He's shown that he's a guy that is willing to pick up the big names, but he does it the hard way. He does it the way that makes it work for his team. Because this is a Toronto Maple Leafs team, guys. It's in a little bit of a cap crunch with having, like I mentioned, about $40 million mixed in with their top line. Well, not, I mean, with Hyman there. I mean, Tavares, Matthew, Martin. That's what I mean. That's that's why I'm mean by the top three. Obviously, Hyman, who's going to get paid this year. <sighs> I'm terrified about that. Because he's probably going to make $5 million the way he's playing this year. Hopefully, he takes one of those hometown discounts. Boy, I hope so. If, if he can pull off a Connor Brown right now, that would be a great thing, I think, for the Leafs. But obviously, that'll be Hyman watch. That'll be for the offseason. But the way he's able to, I don't say manipulate the cap, but able to find his way around the cap to make sure he can fit Foligno in the cap, under the cap, going into the postseason, that is huge for this team. Because Felino comes in, and he's showing that he's going to be a guy that's he wants to win a cup. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, do I hope and do I pray that they win a cup this year with Felino because A, he probably is going to go back to Columbus. Why? He has a family down there. I kind of mentioned a little bit with Shannon Walsh in, in the first interview we did. There was a video I saw that came across Twitter, and it was Felino with his three kids, two boys and a daughter, and they were getting ice cream. And he was all being all like, the typical dad with them, being really cute with them or whatever. And yes, there were cameras and whatever, but let me tell you, that right there said to me, like, all right, the Leafs need to win now. The Leafs need to win the cup this year. Win it with Felino. He can go back to Columbus with a ring on his finger and go back to his family. Because as far as I know, his family's not coming with him to, to Toronto right now. He's going by himself. So think of it this, think of that, guys. That's one thing that maybe people aren't really seeing is the fact that is that he he's going he's leaving his family for probably the I mean for the Leafs fans perspective hopefully for the next 2 to 3 months because obviously that means it's a deep playoff run 
But if that, I mean, it's so tough. And that's why I think people don't quite realize with trades, with guys that are tossed on waivers. By the way, the Leafs just scored Marner to Austin Matthews. Matthews now, I think he's got 32 on the season. It's 2-1 Montreal in the second period. I that's why I look at this deal and I think to myself, man, that's such a it's a big, big move because you're leaving your family. And this was the problem, of course, with the pandemic last year with the bubbles. These guys had to go inside their go inside Toronto or Edmonton. Some guys went from Toronto to Edmonton and have to be away from their families for so long. It is such a tough, tough deal to go through it. And that's why when Anton Forsberg was kept getting thrown on waivers, he's like, where am I supposed to go? Do I go anywhere? Do I travel? Do I just stay home and wait for someone else to put me on waivers? How tough it is for these guys. That's what I think people don't get. It's like, oh my goodness, you know, trade this guy. Make sure you get him. Like, well, I remember I was thinking about this too. Imagine having a family. When you're 21, 22, 23 years old getting traded, all right, I'll just put my the four t-shirts I have, a few pair of pants in a bag, put it over my shoulder. All right, let's get on the plane and go to go down to Raleigh. Oh boy, I got traded over to Vancouver. All right, let's go up to Vancouver. All right, now we're getting moved to where? We're going to Texas, Dallas. Okay, whatever, move down to Dallas. Imagine having a family and doing all that. It's a real tough gig. That's why when Patrick Marlowe first came to Toronto, his family is still in San Jose. I think they are in Ontario now, if I'm not mistaken. Not sure. I don't know. Um, but, But that's my point is there is the aspect of a family when these trades happen. That's why I think I really see that with Nick Foligno this year. Now, obviously, yes, Foligno is not the only married man in the league. He's not the only dad in the league. I I get it. But just seeing it kind of in this way, it's like, wow. Because this is going to be a longer, especially during the pandemic, where going to Canada is kind of something that's a little bit tough for an entire family to get up and move. That's why I think this this move really, for me, is like, wow. You know, it's going to be tough for him to go away from his family for two to three months. That's why I think he's like, well, if I'm going to have to leave my family, we better win this dang thing. Joe Bowen apparently talked to him and he said, he, well, let's go win this blanking cup. Now, obviously, the word blanking was not the one that was used by Nicholas Foligno, the son of Mike Foligno. He will be wearing 71, by the way, with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Last worn by the great David Clarkson, not Mike Foligno. But yes, Mike Foligno, his dad, wore that with the Toronto Maple Leafs last in the 93 playoffs before getting taken in the expansion draft by Florida the next year. Looking at a couple other trades or a couple other moves. One, one that was kind of shocking. No one really expected it. Obviously the Los Angeles Kings are a team that should trade because they are eight, not that good. B really not a contender and C have a lot of old guys, but Jeff Carter going to Pittsburgh, 36 year old Jeff Carter, by the way, Los Angeles gets two picks out of it, a conditional 2022 third round pick and a 2023 conditional fourth. The third becomes a second if the Pens reach the finals and Carter plays half the game. So therefore, Los Angeles is only going to get a 2022 third round pick because uh, Pittsburgh's not making it to the finals this year, guys. I hate to say it. And even if Jeff Carter plays half the games, obviously won't affect it. Interesting move. Because that was really the the big move by Pittsburgh today. Looking at it, guys. I mean, I'm looking at it and see if there's any other moves they made today. And there really wasn't any. There wasn't many big moves. Obviously, saw some moves by the Ducks, both trading and picking up, which was a little funny. 
but we'll get to those here in just a moment. Another one that was pretty big, the David Savard saga. The man that literally apparently everyone wants, but no one really knows a whole lot about. He goes to Tampa in a three-team deal. This one got a little funny as well. Not as crazy as the move that sent good buddy Felino here to Toronto, but Tampa, from, or so Detroit from Columbus got David Savard. They didn't have to give anything up. They retained half of that salary, and then Detroit flips him to Tampa, and they only have to pay half. Or pay half. So technically, Tampa is doing what the Leafs are doing with Felino. They're only paying a quarter of his salary. Detroit also gives Tampa Brian Lashoff, the captain for the Grand Rapids Griffins. That's a straight minor league contract I've ever seen in my life. Tampa gives Detroit a 2021 fourth-round pick, and they give their 2021 first and 2022 second-round picks to Columbus. So if you're keeping track, kids, almost identical moves from the Tampa Bay Lightning, or at least between Tampa and Toronto. Columbus gets a pair of picks. They now have, if I'm not mistaken, three first-round picks in 2021, and they have two in the fourth, two in the third. Actually, let's click on their profile so I can get that clarified here. Yeah, so they have three first-round picks this year due to the Columbus Blue Jackets, their own Tampas and Torontos. They have two in the fifth. They have possibly two in the seventh as well. And, of course, that conditional seventh is the trade that sent Riley Nash over from Columbus to Toronto earlier on this week. They also got the fourth-round pick as well. Wait, hold on. Am I getting the trades right here? Yes, the fourth-round pick is obviously one from Toronto. I was trying to – I'm looking at all these picks. I'm like, gosh, almighty. They also have a fifth-round pick from New Jersey. That is for this year. That came via the trade that – where is it? Here we go. Sent Ryan Murray to the New Jersey Devils. That trade was made on October 8th of this season. So Columbus is sitting pretty with picks this coming on draft. And obviously, the, it may not be the deepest draft on paper, but you could obviously find some players here and there. It's going to be tough for players, for obviously, scouts this year due to COVID, not able to really go out to rinks and watch these players. But like I said, it'll be interesting. Ten more minutes left here on the show. Let's kind of burn through these here. Islanders acquire Braden Coburn from the Ottawa Senators. Ottawa did a little bit of selling. Nothing too big, though. Or, or not nothing crazy this uh this year for Pierre Dorian. Braden Coburn comes over for a 2022 conditional seventh. That is the Islanders' seventh round pick. The Sens also sent Eric Goodbranson to Nashville. I don't know why Nashville is buying anything, but there, they, there you go. I was talking about Mike Riley going from the Ottawa Senators to the Buffalo or Boston Bruins. 2022 third round pick going to the Senators. In that deal, Adam Gaudet going to the Chicago Blackhawks, still under COVID protocols of right now. He was traded for Matthew Highmore. Interesting move. Chicago, not necessarily a big buy, but it's a little bit more depth to the Chicago team that's trying to hang in there in a playoff spot. Dmitry Kulikov goes to the Ottawa to the Edmonton Oilers, excuse me, from the New Jersey Devils. The pick that goes back to New Jersey is a conditional fourth round pick in 2022. Conditions are as follows. The pick will upgrade to a 2022 third round pick. If the Oilers went around in these upcoming playoffs, obviously the Oilers want to win a little bit more than that. Talked about Carl Soderberg going to Colorado. That is for Josh Dickinson and Ryder Rolston. That is his signing rights, by the way, Ryder Rolston. Not exactly a player on the roster yet. Big one from Calgary. Obviously, we saw the move with Dave Riddick. I'm like, okay, obviously you're going to run with the goaltender over there, Jacob Markstrom, your big contract. But you're not selling yet, right? Well, Sam Bennett's now a Florida Panther. 
That and a 2022 sixth round pick. Sam Bennett, no retention of salary by Calgary. They pick up Florida's 2022 second round pick and Emil Heineman, or Heineman, excuse me, his signing rights. And then there was the three-team deal that sent Matias Janmark and Nick DeSimeone to San Jose, and they get Chicago's 2022 fifth-round pick. San Jose is also a buffer in that one. San Jose sent Janmark over to Vegas. Vegas, of course, once again, having to only pay a quarter of his salary, or at least a half of the salary that was retained from from the deal that sent San Jose gave Janmark from Chicago to Vegas, only paying a little over five hundred sixty grand are the Knights. The Chicago Blackhawks only really get anything from Vegas. They get a 2021 second-round pick and a 2022 third-round pick. Chicago also sent Madison Bowie in a 2021 fifth-round pick to the Vancouver Canucks. Vancouver gives them a 2021 fourth-round pick. We talked about the Detroit Red Wings getting a couple of picks and a couple of players for from the Washington Capitals for Anthony Mantha. Ben Hutton coming over from the Anaheim Ducks for a 2022 fifth-round pick. The Ducks acquire Hayden Flurry though, for Yanni Hockenpah. Yanni Hockenpah. I'm not laughing because of the name. I just couldn't say it. And a 2022 sixth-round pick from Anaheim for Hayden Flurry. Obviously, as a cap move, it's only 1.3, but obviously Hayden Flurry's stock's been going up. Leafs sent Alex Barabanov, which is tough for that kid because he hasn't been able. He came over with a lot of opportunity, unfortunately. Didn't get a whole lot of playing time with this obviously very packed offensive front for the Leafs. And obviously Dubas and Kiefer realizing that they kind of have their set group of players this season for the playoffs. The Sharks will give the Leafs anti-Sioma. Samella, holy moly. I can't say any words anymore. My coffee's gone, guys. I only got a couple more minutes left on the show. The last, well, obviously Michael Roffle going from Philadelphia to Washington. Washington gets, or Washington gives Philly Vegas's 2021 fifth round pick. A little bit, like I said, a little bit of a oddball, at least that's of the theme of the day. The last trade that is official, deadline. Jordy Ben going to the Winnipeg Jets from the Vancouver Canucks. Obviously, Winnipeg, seemingly a little bit more of a position for a playoff run than Vancouver, obviously. And the Canucks will get a sixth round pick that is of Winnipeg's of this year's draft. A little bit of a nice move from Winnipeg. Give them a little bit more stability on the back end. Very tough, very tough this year uh, with just having Josh Morrissey. And obviously, you want to have depth if you want to be tough or want to be competitive in this North Division that has very talented offenses. Obviously, right now, if it were to be today, Toronto would play Montreal. Edmonton would play Winnipeg. And the, yes, the Jets do have Connor Hellebuck, but you need to have a little bit more than that if you want to hang with Connor McDavid for a seven-game series. Unless you're the Chicago Blackhawks and Corey Crawford decides to play well and this guy named Dominic Kubelik decides to tear everyone apart in one game. But that is it for this one, folks. That is it for our trade deadline recap. Thank you once again to Shannon Walsh joining us early on, Nathan Strauss from UMass, and, of course, recently State of Hoppy from the Soda Pod. We probably won't have Shannon Walsh's on the podcast or the podcast forum tomorrow. Unfortunately, the audio quality was not the best. That's, unfortunately, my fault. It's the Wi-Fi on my end. She thought it was her fault. Unfortunately, it wasn't. But the video will still be part of our YouTube replay tomorrow, so don't worry about that, folks. That'll be on there for sure. So be sure to tune that in as well tomorrow. Thank you for tuning in here on 12 Ounce Sports. Do have to give some news, though. I will not be doing the show next Monday, or I don't think next week at all. Reason being, I'm doing the ACHA National Tournament that's here in Grand Rapids this coming weekend. It's also going to carry over until next week. Monday is the semifinal, 4 o'clock and 7 o'clock games. Unfortunately, I apparently cannot do (laughs) 
do my show live because it'd be kind of awkward if like Hope and Arkansas were playing against each other. Well, guys, I know this game's on the ice right now, but uh, what about that play yesterday between Washington and Philadelphia, man? Did you see that game over there? Ty, we're talking about the game over here. No, we're talking about the Kula show here on the HDHA National Championship broadcast. So no show next week. I thought about trying to fit it in somewhere, but I'm, I just have a lot of events right now because spring and fall sports are all in the spring right now at Davenport. And since this is my last year there, I probably should make sure I leave on a good note with those guys. So I'm working hard. Oh, also, according to my uh, the, the lady that's yelling in the other room, I have a wife that also needs to be attended to. So I'll be uh, obviously having that as well. Oh, and I have a dog, too. I have a little puppy, Wixie. You guys see her on the show. She likes to hang up here on the table sometimes and likes to come on in. But that said, that is it for this week's episode of The Kula Show. There's a lot to get to today. <laughs> a lot of truculence, as good boy Brian Burke would say, Pittsburgh's president of hockey ops. Of course, here she comes right as we're ending the show. Say hi, Wixie. There she is. There's the Wixie girl. And that is it for this week's episode of The Kula Show. We'll see you guys in two weeks. We'll be sure to tweet all the good news and whatnot. What are you, what are you doing? She looks, she looks in pain. Why are you doing that to her? I'm going to go now. At The Kula Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Hashtag TKS. Be sure to check out the podcatcher. Yeah, your favorite podcatcher. Check out the replay tomorrow. Also on YouTube as well. I'm Tyra Kula saying so long. It's been fun, guys. See you later.